Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. Now, in 2012, Lucasfilm, the company behind Star Wars, was purchased by the Walt Disney Company for $4 billion. Ironically, almost four decades before that acquisition, Disney had passed on George Lucas's space adventure, then budgeted at around $5 million. And in that context, it's, it's interesting, the late 70s were a difficult time for the Walt Disney Company, following the death of its founders, Walt Disney in 1966 and Roy Disney in 1971. And there were some within the company, including then-President Ron Miller, who felt that if Disney was going to survive, it needed to broaden the idea of what a Disney film was. This drive to expand its audience led to one of the most interesting and controversial eras in the company's history. From the late 70s to the mid-80s, Disney released a number of unusual films, many of which were, were not successful at the box office, but nevertheless pushed the boundaries of what was considered Disney fair. And we're going to be talking about two of those films today. The first is The Black Hole. There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge, where the here and now may be forever. An unavoidable hole moving through space, swallowing everything in its path. Now, man is about to enter. Black Hole began its development in the early 70s under the title Space Station One from writers Bob Barbash and Richard Landau. The early version was a space-themed disaster movie in the vein of The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. But with the success of Star Wars, the project gained a new life and was rewritten by Jeb Rose Book and later Jerry Day. Pre-production really got underway in January of 1978 and the film was retitled The Black Hole. Directed by Gary Nelson and starring Maximilian Schell, Robert Forrester, Anthony Perkins, Ernest Borgnine, Joseph Bottoms, and Yvette Mimieux, it also featured Roddy McDowell and Slim Pickens as the voices of Vincent and Old Bob, respectively. Uh, the Black Hole was, was Disney's big, you know, first big effort to sort of cash in on, on the Star Wars phenomenon. And it's a fascinating movie. Rob. We both rewatched the Black Hole recently. What are your thoughts on this on this very interesting movie? Watching the Black Hole, I couldn't help but notice the uh, compare and contrast it to material for children today. I have a I have a daughter who is you know prime age for watching these kinds of things, and what's funny to me is that the Black Hole, especially when you look at it with Star Wars, um, the original. Hmm. The Black Hole, I think, is asking children to do aesthetic and stylistic work that we don't ask kids to do anymore, and that Star Wars certainly did not ask kids to do. Interesting. Uh, what's, what's funny is I think today um, that children's material asks kids to do a lot more narrative work than they did back in the day. Right. Um, and, and so from that aspect, The Black Hole is a very simple and streamlined story. Um and very different from Star Wars in that mm -hmm. uh, it's not really a singular hero. I mean, I know there's Leia and Han, but Luke is the focus of that first movie. It is sure. 
his is the hero's journey. This really is a group hero as well. So, which is also is not, it's very unlike Disney at the time as well. Yeah. So this movie is just breaking a lot of uh, conventions in a way that um, may have heard it at the time, but I do really, really enjoy it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Budgeted at $20 million. This was the most expensive movie made by the Walt Disney Company to this point. It was also the first Disney film ever to be rated PG. All of the previous Disney films were rated G. Um, and that was a huge deal at the time. Ron Miller uh, was quoted in Starlog as saying, I don't think there's anything in the black hole that would offend anybody. But if it's good, it's going to succeed regardless of rating. So the idea, just the idea of Disney releasing a PG movie is, is just, was sort of a, a massive thing at the time. Um, it's, Black Hole follows the space exploration vessel USS Palomino, which discovers a massive black hole and perched just beyond the event horizon what appears to be the abandoned USS Cygnus, an Earth spaceship lost some 20 years earlier. The Palomino is damaged and is nearly pulled into the black hole, but they are, and they, so they are forced to dock with the Cygnus to make repairs. They soon realize the ship is not abandoned, but that its captain, the brilliant Dr. Hans Reinhardt, has been studying the black hole and intends to journey inside. Meanwhile, the Palomino crew attempt to solve the mystery of what happened to the Cygnus's original crew before it's too late. Um, it's... Obviously, we have talked about a number of movies in this series that have mimicked Star Wars in terms of st of tone and style. And with our last episode, with our discussions of Alien and Star Trek The Motion Picture, we discussed two films that drew more from 2001 A Space Odyssey. But The Black Hole seems to try and sort of copy from both movies at the same time, which leads to some very kind of unusual sort of stylistic uh, changes in tone. Yeah, it's interesting that you have uh, a movie, again, aimed at the whole family, but yeah. including children, that opens with a black screen overture. Yes! <laughs> um, and th this score is in the vein of more of a John Williams score, so it's yeah. not it's not as um, tense and creepy as a 2001 score, but it is, again, this is part of that aesthetic work that I just we never ask kids to do this kind right. of thing again. Yeah, it was hey, written. The score was written. <laughs> the score was written by John Barry, and interestingly, it was the first film score to be recorded digitally. So there's just a little bit of trivia for you. And this movie and Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which came out within two weeks each of each other in December of 1979, were the last two major Hollywood films to open with overtures. So it's it's there's a piece of this that is sort of you know kind of the end of one era, um, and it's interesting that this is just a movie that on the one hand you're focusing on the mystery and awesomeness of space exploration. It's asking big questions about the nature of the universe and what if anything may lay beyond. And the other hand, we have some very cute robots and protracted laser gun fights. So it's uh, it, it's it's. It's very interesting. It's like more than anything else, it feels like a space age version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Walt Disney film from 1954. That's funny because I thought with where the film goes that it winds up being Baby's first event horizon. But uh, <laughs> that is. But we'll get there. We'll that get is there terrifying. We, uh, yeah, that's yes. a, 
Uh, as as we usually do, I will. This is the, uh, some of these movies are are older, but we want to put a spoiler warning at the front. We are going to talk about the film in depth. So if you haven't seen the Black Hole uh, and want to do so, uh, please go do that and then come back and uh, you know and and we'll we'll you know you'll you'll get a much richer discussion if you've watched the film. Um, honestly, I'm going to say this: I can't think of another movie with the possible exception of Logan's Run, that is crying out for a remake more than The Black Hole. I, I think that all of the raw material is there, but the, the sort of style of the time and the types of movies, it, it doesn't quite... It's, it's very weird. It doesn't quite fully go as far as it could, and then there's other places where it, it, it doesn't... It's, it's a very unusual film. I really like it, but I think there's so much potential in doing a new Black Hole... I mean, especially considering that from a scientific purpose, a scientific point of view, we've learned so much more about them in the intervening, you know, decades. Uh, even the day we record this, um, the first picture of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy uh, has been released to the public, and it's just sort of fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, I and I think if you did this um, kind of much like Battlestar Galactica, you would probably gear it less toward the whole family and uh and age it up a little bit um but it's it's interesting in looking at this i'd said it opened with uh a black black screen overture uh when it shifts into that title sequence because you talked about the taking from star wars taking from Mm -hmm. 2001 i mean the opening of the movie has it right there the opening is what's a black overture but it is kind of more john williams-esque score yeah but once you get to the title sequence it switches and you have almost it's it's not quite creepy but it almost is verging on the uh on creepy music and it again is part of my rorschach test of myself it has those up and down kind of quality to it that almost has Bernard Herrmann's vertigo at Total. the heart of it. Absolutely. Um, no, it, it's definitely... And, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's... You know, we talked about how in, in Alien, both um, both the Nostromo as well as the, the derelict alien spaceship feel like haunted houses. Uh, well, the Cygnus, perhaps even more so, feels like a haunted yes. house. It's that great moment where they're kind of... It's, it's all dark and it, it's... You know, it, it's... Yeah, and then the lights come on. Now they're outside, and then the lights on the interior of the ship kind of snap on, and it's like it's truly unsettling. Yes, and it is one of those moments too where you have um, just the color scheme of the ship mm. and the lights. It is very much that kind of uh, dark black frame, and then you have kind of that glowing orange light but it is that kind of nighttime orange that um a lot of movies at this time were doing uh i, I always think of it even though it's a little later as the the somebody to watch over me lighting scheme of right there's that like orange arc lamp yeah. <laughs> at night and then uh blue like that yeah kind of like steely dark blue and this movie has a lot of that with a yeah. little purple thrown in the design of the Cygnus is amazing. Like it is like the way it feels like this kind of wrought iron, uh, you know, like it, it, it almost doesn't feel like a space vessel. Um, and it's, it's just, it's fantastic. Um, I, you know, I, I love that, uh, you know, you, you have, a 
I love that they travel through the ship in giant pneumatic tubes. And it's so big that you have to go through the ship in giant pneumatic tubes. It really appeals to my, you know, sort of, you know, love of pneumatic tubes. Um, you know, truthfully, the movie, the human characters in the movie are a little flat. I think that's where in a remake you could you could bring those characters to life in a more in a more interesting way. The robots are actually the most compelling. In particular, Vincent, who is the robot voiced by Roddy McDowell, and who's one of the most iconic images from this movie, is the the robot with giant Disney eyes. Uh, and he's like a combination of R2-D2 and C-3PO. It's like, hey, let's do R2-D2 and C-3PO in one robot, and you get Vincent. Yes, I was also, because as a child, I... Was a big black hole fan. I had a sure. little storybook with the the forty five record that you would play. Yes, and I, and I remember Vincent and Bob, and I always remembered. Um, spoiler alert again: Bob's sacrifice as yep. uh, being a big deal uh, as a kid. Watching it now, I was surprised that it it still felt like a big deal. Uh, this is where not only Roddy McDowell but Slim Pickens, mm-hmm. they both actually give a lot of pathos in that performance. They um, do. It's voice only. The robots do look a little, a little cutie, a little cutie pie. Um, and yet they still bring that across where when they are all escaping or attempting to escape and old Bob has to sacrifice himself so they can get away. I mean, it, it you, you do feel it. Yeah, no, I, I watched this with my wife who had never seen it and heard me talk about it for, you know, well, a lot. And um, she was genuinely uh, uh, troubled by that moment when, when old Bob, uh, you know, has to sacrifice himself. Like, she was just she was genuinely upset by that. Um, and it's, it's uh, let's also talk about the other, the other major robot in the film, Maximilian, the giant red... I mean, Maximilian is an incredibly effective design. He is more frightening than any robot in any of the Star Wars movies to this point. Like, he is genuinely scary. Yeah, it feels like, even though he looks nothing like it, this is definitely the Darth Vader-esque character as far as the design of it all, right? Making something iconic. Although... You know, with his spinning blade arms that come out and things like that, he does, he has a little touch of James Bond villain in him a little bit as well. But the, yeah, the design is great and it's kind of um, where we get with Dr. Reinhardt, we get the Emperor and Apprentice yeah. uh, in the same movie right off the bat in this but, one. But it's unclear. There's a one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um it comes after Anthony Perkins. The, this robot Maximilian kills Anthony Perkins' character, uh, uh, and it's uh, Durant is the, the character's name. And it's it's a very, it's a death is the death is both abrupt and brutal. Like it it kind of it's like oh wow all of a sudden that happened and it's it's really sudden and shocking. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. But there's a line that. Uh, that that Reinhardt, the, who has created this robot ostensibly, says to to one of the other characters after that happens, he says, "Protect me from Maximilian." And it's so, it's like, oh, that that you know, like brings up some interesting ideas of is is Reinhardt not completely in charge, and you know, is um. You know, is 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 there something more going on here where the creation has come to dominate the creator? Now, what I learned about that line, interestingly enough, 
is that according to director Gary Nelson, Maximilian Schell came up with that line himself. Quote, it was an improvisational line. I don't think it was in the script. It was just something Max came up with on the spot. But like, I, I think to myself, if you were doing a black hole remake, like that's something you could key in on and have these creations started to, you know, kind of take control of their creator in a way that 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 even he does not understand. Uh, also, a note about Anthony Perkins' death. When I was a kid, I listened, I had the read-along, like, record and book. And I listened to that over and over again, so much so that it embedded itself into my, into my mind much more than the film itself, because I think I saw the film, but not, you know, not as many times I listened to the read-along record. And Anthony Perkins' character is completely absent from that version, from the, the read-along book. And I think it's just because they didn't want to deal with sort of the shocking death. But when I when I saw this movie for the first time as an adult, and this was a number of years ago now, I was like, I didn't even remember Anthony Perkins being in it. Yeah. Turn the page. <laughs> uh, had to get that in there. Yeah, I could see where they wouldn't want a page of the illustrated death of a character at the brutal hands of the robot. Um, and it's, um, and yet at the other times it feels like they are trying to use the robots as a lighthearted comic relief. Uh, yeah. for instance, uh, Vincent has kind of a cocky Han Solo personality, oddly enough. Yeah. At times, like when, uh, there are robots on the, uh, on the Cygnus mm -hmm. that are, um, you know, uh, they all have guns for whatever. They all reason. have guns. But they they like all have laser guns. They hang out in a room. They hang yeah, out in a room. And they and they do and this they kind shoot. of shooting game. <laughs> which I, I have to think, like I, I was watching this movie and thinking, oh, there's two two sequences that were sort of built in Walt Disney World attractions if they were ever gonna do it. One was the pneumatic tube ride through the through the Cygnus with you know when the media storm is coming on. I'm like, I can imagine that as a as a dark ride. And the other is the is the 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 laser gun shootout where I'm like, oh you go up against the robots in a laser gun shootout. Uh, it's also where the the the, the um the robot who is like the the captain star he's the he's the best of the of the robot gunslingers um was played by friday the 13th part 6 jason lives director tom mclaughlin i believe he wrote and directed part 6 that's true yes he did write and direct that is absolutely true uh and i'm just like that's a fascinating little bit of uh of trivia there there's a weird scene like when when old bob is you know, is talking about those robots and, you know, after the, after the shootout and, um, he says, you know, like, you know, after he beat star, you know, old Bob says he did things to me that I sure don't like to think about. What, what did he do to you? Like, what is the, that's a weird thing. You know, it's, it's, there's so many lines and, and things of just touches of weirdness in this movie. And, and it's worth mentioning the look of old Bob. Because, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, as he's saying that line, I mean, part, he looks like Vincent, except part of his head's kind of crushed in. The metal's yeah. crushed in. His eyes are askew. So this, this robot has clearly had a lot of, um, you know, physical damage occurred to it. And you just wonder what else may have happened. Um, it is, it's pretty 
chilling, oddly enough. Um, eventually, we find out in the course of the movie that the the, the crew of the Cygnus never actually... Uh, Reinhardt tells the story that, that the crew left and only he stayed behind. Uh, eventually, we learn that the crew that has been roboticized and that they are, in fact, the, 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 the robots that are wearing these sort of kind of featureless masks are, in fact human beings that have been have been uh, had their basically had their wills removed and it's it's truthfully kind of an anticlimactic reveal because you learn it and then there's this great moment where where uh, i think it's anthony perkins character takes the mask off of one and there's a human face underneath but it would have been much more effective if you didn't know that was going to be there like it's it's a strange it's how that reveal is comes is, is a sort of strange thing and it leads there are motivational issues in this movie that don't quite work. Like there's, it's odd that Reinhardt, you know, he's not trying to keep them there. It's like they want to go. He wants them to go. You know, all they have to do is wait for their ship to be repaired. And it, there's some weird things that kind of rob the the movie of an urgency. Well, and with the, uh, as you were talking about, the old crew has been roboticized because Reinhardt uh, didn't want to return home. And wanted right. to study that black hole, so presumably he killed them. Yeah. One of our crew from the Palomino, Dr. What Kate McRae, yes. uh, her father was part of that mission. And it, look, she does find out that her father died earlier, but yeah. thinking it was an accident. And then learning that, no, your, your father is probably a walking robotic ghoul here somewhere. But they, they really don't. Um, do a ton with it. Yeah. Uh, part of that, I think, is they they kind of uh, overall Kate doesn't get as much uh, gets a little short shrift. Although, as you pointed out, a lot of the characters, frankly, do. Yeah. Um, for instance, Kate also, and this is established at the beginning of the movie, and then almost dropped. Yes. Kate has a psychic connection with Vincent and can uh, communicate with him with her mind, and this is. Uh, a revelation that's treated as if it's oh yeah yeah people in this world are just psychic it's and super weird kind of yeah nothing yeah yeah the, the the revelation that esp it comes as if it's a completely normal ability like like oh by the 23rd century or whenever this takes place we have lots of people with esp um and maybe that was sort of the 70s influence because at that time Topics like ESP and other extrasensory abilities were very much in the zeitgeist of that period. But the fact that she has ESP with a robot is like a super weird, like it's, it kind of adds a layer of weird on top of something that's already strange. I, I, I wonder if this is one of those little things where it could be left over from an earlier draft and for whatever reason yeah. it just... They never took it out. It could be that they wanted their version of the Force and then just kind of... But the story didn't really require it. Right. I, you know, things like that. Because there is... Um, this movie, while it is very unlike Star Wars in many, many ways, um, there are moments, um, especially in the direction where I feel... So far, this feels like the only director who actually watched Star Wars so far and and looked at how George Lucas directed it. Yeah. So there's a there are some moments in here. Lucas always uses these, well, or quite frequently uses these visual transit uh, transitions in Star Wars. Yeah. And Black Hole has some of those. So you remember in Star Wars, 
when, for instance, Leah is going to get uh, torture droided to try and reveal oh, yeah. uh, the secrets of the of the rebellion by Vader. And it's the floating droid. Yeah, and then, the droid's coming in and then the door comes down and then you cut to commercial. Camera goes with the door. Well, and camera goes with the door. And camera then goes with the door off. and then there's a guy walking down the hall. Yes, yeah, there's sort of boots walking down that. the hall. And then, because I had taped it off of, of commercial television in like 1984 yeah. when I was a kid, uh, I, I remember, I watched that tape so many times before I had a, a store-bought copy, that's where you cut to commercial. That was the, you know, that yeah, was one of the commercial yeah. breaks. And and here he does something similar uh, where there's a, it's a sequence when the crew first boards the Cygnus. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of a long shot and our crew wants to use a door. It opens to the left and we cut inside another room. And the camera dollies forward for a bit as we see the far door open. Then the camera pans to the left uh, and we're low and the door slides up. Now yep. and the camera goes up with the door and that reveals robots with weapons. Uh, yes. Giving us a little tension of what's to come. Um, and really, in many ways, it's the exact reverse of the shot in Star Wars that I it described. Is. It's just and, you know, so things like that where you go, oh, this is someone who actually studied some of the stylistic substance and not just um, cute robots. Right. It, yeah. No, it's 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 really interesting. Uh, I also they do try to turn they do try to robotica, uh, roboticize Kate uh, at one yes. point And she is. Uh, she is wrapped up in an aluminum foil as if she was a human baked potato. And it always makes me laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. And honestly, the, 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 the production design on this movie is, is so terrific. Uh, I, I thought there are elements of it, it. It doesn't have the sort of gritty reality of Alien. But it, honestly, the movie it reminded me most was Forbidden Planet. It, like yeah. the interiors of the Cygnus feel reminded me of the Krell, the underground Krell city from Forbidden Planet. Um, but there, there's that great shot. And late in the film, in what seems like a sudden random event, there is a meteor storm that comes and destroys. And it feels, again, it feels very random. Uh, I think there's a way, if you were if you were remaking that movie, this movie, there would be a way to do that and have it feel more organically. Like, oh, they they know this is coming, but Reinhardt insists on staying because, you know, this is the right time to go into the black hole or something like that. There'd be some buildup to it. Uh, but there's that iconic shot of the meteor coming down sort of the main giant quarter mm-hmm. of the Cygnus, and they're running across on the bridge. I mean, like, that's the, that's the shot that people, you know, really remember from this movie. Uh, Oh, from yeah, this. that red molten oh. ball rolling down. Uh, oh, it's super cool. For them. Yeah, destroying all in its path. And and it's kind of, I always connect it a little bit with earlier when they, speaking of your production design stuff, mm. when they first get on, you know, the bridge of the ship and you just get those giant windows oh, uh, yeah. with the space and black hole in the background. And you get, you know, and the, the bridge itself is very, very impressive too. It's very just cool. The scope and the scale. It, it it is very it's very beautiful and kind of awe inspiring and then uh, but you have that moment where everything is kept out and then later on of course uh, the the boundaries of the ship fall away and you start all of that starts coming in um, and uh, you know part of that I guess is that, that they do light the ship to look like hell to begin with and yeah and boy does it really get there by the end well that's a perfect segue and we're gonna well I think we need to talk a little bit about the ending of this movie and how you know what what exactly 
uh, and happens. Um, now, the third act, for the most part, is a protracted laser gun battle. Like, they're basically running through the ship trying to get back to the Palomino, and it, it's interesting. Reinhardt is ostensibly killed when a giant flat-screen TV falls on him, which I thought was just... I, I thought that was so curious. Like, oh, wow, okay. Um, but in the end, of course, they end up going through the black hole. The Palomino is is destroyed. They get onto the probe ship that is sort of the, the little mini vessel, and they end up getting sucked into the black hole anyway. And, well, I mean, it's a journey through heaven and hell, or hell and heaven, I suppose. Uh, it, it feels like this kind of, you know, Christianity-infused vision of... It's like, oh, we're going to do the Christian version of the end of 2001. A little bit. It it also is, you know, my first psychedelic freak out. Uh, <laughs> because you have kind of that stuttery as the uh, Yeah, it kind of this. They're the freeze they're frames. Through, a little blur. I mean, it's, you know, for something that um, in the modern era you would 100% be using, I'm sure, computer uh, oh, graphics yeah. for and, and doing a lot of fancy stuff. It is it is pretty effective uh, some of the old school uh, ways to do this, and um, you know I, I look at the ending perhaps a little bit differently than you um, in that uh, just by the time they come out the other side right? right they come out through all of that and then you know it is treated somewhat the music makes you think that ah oh, we're through right right uh, we 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 didn't we didn't get crushed yeah but. They are just in the vast nothingness of space, and we have absolutely no idea what's on the other side. And I'm just like, oh, great. Yeah, here's your happy ending, baby. You made it through <laughs> the black hole, and you've come out the other side, sailing into the unknown and probably certain death. Because, I mean, are you going to be near anywhere that's habitable? No. But the um, angel led them through, so they it's got the angel wouldn't just be leading them to like you know a, a star desert, Rob. It's it's obviously guiding you know you know Reinhardt. He gets trapped inside the body of Maximilian in this weird shot where like you know Reinhardt like kind of it, it's it's really honestly I I I I can't remember seeing this movie for the first time, but I I have to think it must have. It must have screwed me up a little bit. Like it's 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 because I definitely saw it young. Like I don't know if I saw it in the theaters oh, or it was yeah. on video, but like it, it's that ending for a kid. This is I think what you're talking about at the beginning of the show was like it, it's sort of asking more of kids, you know, in, in a tonal sense than than most movies today. And in that bit with Reinhardt and Maximilian is there. They're in space. They've gotten yeah. kind of blasted out. They're falling into the black hole, and they they embrace each other. And this is yeah. all wordless. This there's is no all. Dialogue. There's no. There's no dialogue at this point. Yes. So that you know everything's tinged red. You have kind of the fiery redness all around them. They embrace each other, and then you just kind of have like these little. It's super slow, but like almost like a strobe effect of sorts, where then it, you know you go out and you come. The image comes back in, and you see Maximilian's helmet and the little red visor eye visor that's normally there is busted out and now all of a sudden you see Reinhardt's, Reinhardt's eyes, eyes. yeah and it's like crazy and open behind them and then you eventually get to Maximilian on planet hell yeah. uh, just standing there all alone and there's all um, sorts of other figures too like there's other like you know it, 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 he's not alone in hell which is it's sort of an interesting you know like it's um, now what I what I learned is apparently the end of the script as read, 
was just they went into the black hole and they left <laughs> it for the filmmakers to figure out the original ending which was actually shot uh, was apparently even more on the nose religious in nature uh, it, it had a, a close-up of where the, the camera went closed up on Yvette Mimieux's eye and then it pulled back and it's the eye of Adam in Michelangelo's painting on the on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and you pull back to get the whole the whole creation uh, of of Adam uh, that's on the on the the ceiling of that. Uh, and they actually went to Rome and they got permission from the Vatican to shoot inside the Sistine Chapel, but they they decided uh, not to use it. I, and I actually think that's the right call. Like it is too much. It's uh, you know. Well, I'd love for that to be a deleted scene. I know it's Blu-ray. not anywhere, but man, that it's not <laughs> on like the Blu-ray or anything like that. It it would be great. This was sort of Disney's first effort into, you know, kind of really breaking into something that was not purely children's entertainment that had a broader remit. And this, the, the era that this is part of, uh, is super interesting because you have you have other Disney films like The Watcher in the Woods came out a year later. Uh, Something Wicked they, This Way Comes. Eventually, you'd have Return to Oz. Um, and perhaps most infamously, The Black Cauldron. Uh, all of these films were really pushing the boundary of what a Walt Disney picture was. Along with the second film we're going to talk about today, Tron. There are over one million computer systems in the United States. Inside every one of them is a startling new world. When Kevin Flynn, a computer genius, unlocks the dimension beneath the screen, he becomes a prisoner in a world of his own making. The world of Tron. Written and directed by Steven Lesberger, Tron tells the story of video game developer Kevin Flynn, who is uploaded into a computer world where computer programs take on the appearance of the people who programmed them. There, he must compete in an array of gladiatorial video games and battle the evil master control program to bring freedom to the electronic world. Tron stars Jeff Bridges, Bruce Boxleitner, Cindy Morgan, and David Warner. And it was one of the first films to employ computer animation in its groundbreaking special effects sequences depicting the world inside the computer. And it's we paired these two together because they are both, while they are different from one another, they're both really kind of Disney trying to sort of push the bounds of, of, of what those movies are into something more akin to Star Wars. With Tron, the details super different from star wars it's not even set in space no but i would say that this definitely flynn does appear to have much more of a luke skywalker journey as far as the story goes yes and that you do have an evil empire you have uh a vader emperor of sorts uh master control program yeah and 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 sark the program played by david warner is kind of his darth vader yeah, and you've got uh, Master Control Program is also, it's it's like it's the Emperor and the Death Star rolled into one. Yes. And you even wind up having to attack it directly at the end of the film. Um, so you have a lot of that, although, you know what, a lot of this came from Lisberger outside of the system. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's definitely not chasing. 
um, being Star Wars uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But there are these similarities, um, like core similarities that you just think, oh, well, I, I can see where Disney thought this might be our shot. Right. Like that 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 Disney looked at that and said, Oh, well, this this is something that can harness that same audience and 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 kind of and it was it was a pretty when it came out in eighty two, it was a pretty successful film. I mean, it was more successful than the black hole. Um, but it was still a very expensive film. So it's one of those things where it uh you know, the the cost wasn't necessarily justified. Uh I don't know. There's something about watching this film again, this film makes me want to play laser tag. And go to the arcade and then oh, have some pizza afterwards with I a miss the arcade. pitcher of soda. I really miss arcades. And and, and it's it's um, like it's so interesting that Tron starts with someone playing a video game that you could actually play in arcades. Which, I mean, talk about synergy there. Uh, I remember that, that translucent joystick on the Tron light cycle oh, game. Yeah. Like it was super cool. Um, oh, pop quiz about that game. Yes. Do you remember the first screen, the first light cycle that you battle? What is the pattern that you need to uh, that you need to drive your light cycle in order to win? I have no idea because I always lost that game. I was terrible at it. A question mark. A question mark is the first thing you need to draw to oh. win the first battle. It's very simple and it gets gets more complex from there. I don't remember. I did not know. See, I I was I, I always just sort of. I was honestly, I wasn't the best at that game, uh, but I just thought it was so cool. And, you know, it's such an interesting, like this is such an interesting 80s pre-internet, pre-virtual reality vision of what computers could do. And it honestly, it feels like a movie that's kind of ahead of its time. Like it, it's, you know, not just the visuals and the visuals are definitely ahead of its time, but the idea of sort of sentient computer programs and their their internal life feels kind of proto Pixar in it, in its conception. Like it, it's a foreshadower of things like Toy Story and Cars and Monsters Inc. Um, you know, and and obviously the Matrix, like the, the the Flynn's ability in the in the the computer as a user, which is what they refer to human beings, um, are not unlike Neo's ability to reshape the Matrix as he sees fit, or even the Force for that matter. Yeah, I mean, and given the time period, it's it's in some ways proto cyberpunk. I guess you could call it cyberpup, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, like That's, it's it's because uh, that that was just you know, uh, Walter Gibson was writing around this time, so it's just starting to emerge. Um, Neil Stevenson was a couple of years, I think, uh, down the road. Uh, at, you know, when he wrote Snow Crash, um, and it's. Uh, Honestly, the, the other th- movie this made me think of is the idea of the computer programs believing their users akin to gods is not unlike V'ger searching for its creator in Star Trek The Motion Picture, only to discover that it, its creator are ordinary, fallible human beings. And it also, and, and look, I, I think this is not something that they were chasing, but... It also gives that quasi-religious feel that Star Wars has with the Force and yeah. the Jedi Knights, um, which some of the films that we've looked at have definitely inserted in in a, a more shoehorny way. But I think there was just a lot in the zeitgeist at this time about yeah. comparing and contrasting technological advance with spirituality. Uh, this is obviously something that we haven't necessarily grown out of, but it seems that in this time period, 
uh, in the late seventies into the early eighties that this was popping up in a lot of things. And I think an organic way um, that towards the end of this cycle of films, I think you start to see that drop away a little bit yeah. more uh, once we get into the mid to the late eighties. Yes. Yeah. And we will, we will get there as the, as our, our series goes on. Um, yeah. And, and, and the world, there's, there is something about this movie that feels emotionally distant. Like I never quite emotionally connect with it, but it's, I mean, it's, it's visually fascinating. And, you know, I mean, you know, if you're a Mad Men fan, I, Pete Campbell would be glad to know that High Lie exists in the digital world. Um, and and it's just it's it's the the games the the sort of the the combat games that they play are really interesting, um, and it's it's a very it's very much of its time, but it's it's also very forward looking um, in that sense. It's also it's very eighties in that the movie ends with a corporate takeover. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, you, you talk about the games, and this is one of those areas where you know comparing it to star wars and again i don't think that they were copying at all no but when you have those one-on-one games with uh you know the the uh you'll have two one character on one uh disc grid and the other character far away on the other and they're slinging uh as chris said kind of like a highlight ball and they have a little catcher mitt uh, is one of the individual games where if you go back and forth and if the ball hits, it can make things uh, part of the floor disappear, and you could fall yeah. to your death as a program. Um, You'd be derezzed. Derezzed. This kind of gives you the one-on-one combat of lightsabers and um, and uh, you know the the laser guns, the blaster pistols, and the light cycles where they have the little cycle pods that you get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that, that form around you and as you drive the vehicle on the grid it uh for those who haven't seen tron uh there is a kind of a wall that spits out yeah. behind you and so as you race against your opponent you can lead them into a wall and they crash and derez right and the wall stays often... it doesn't fade behind you it's it stays solid yeah and it's this was the video game that I struggled to play. If I had only known to go in a question mark, I would have been able to get past the first level. Yeah, and this gives a lot of the uh, spaceship battlefield. I mean, at one point, I think when they're doing that, they're even talking about leaders and... Yeah, there's, um, I think they... I, yeah, there's definitely... Yes, there's there's certainly a, a Star Wars... You know, the, the, the Battle of Yavin at the end of the first Star Wars kind of uh, vibe to that. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, again, radically different. I don't think that they were doing anything on purpose, but it uh, it's interesting in that you see, and I think some of the films later on too, where you get that split between one-on-one combat and kind of group technological combat that's yeah. going on. And, and and this is sort of in general, we, we, we some of the movies that we've watched and we've talked about so far in the show are obviously very deliberately mimicking star wars other ones it's not a case of of deliberately mimicking it's the fact that star wars had kind of come into the zeitgeist at a particular time and sort of you know had kind of advanced these ideas or motifs or 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 imagery and that worked its way into other films in a way that um you know was not again wasn't necessarily oh we're we're setting out to do Star Wars, but we're trying to kind of capture that same that same vibe 
and by extension, have the same success at the box office. Oh, yeah. Um, Another way, when you were talking about the visuals of this earlier, I think it's another way where just uh, deep down, this winds up long term for me. It worked like Star Wars Mm -hmm. in that the visuals are nothing like each other. But Star Wars, it was groundbreaking at the time. So was Tron. Yep. Uh, Star Wars, though, because it used a lot of the practical models, the sets looked dirty and lived in. Uh, so it still looks good. And I, look, I know oh, yeah. he's done some work on the picture. But frankly, even if you see a source that uh, where that this you know that work hasn't been done, it still looks really good, and it's held up remarkably well for a, a movie as old as it is. Mm-hmm. Tron is the exact opposite end of that spectrum where you know this is early early cg so clearly the textures and things don't hold a candle to what you can do now but because they made everything so stylized mm-hmm. you can't have an uncanny valley if you don't try to make it look like anything yeah. that's real and yeah. so it winds up working you know on a whole different level that just didn't age in the same you know didn't age right. that poorly because it's not it's not supposed to be real whereas some of the movies maybe from the the early to mid 90s if you didn't have enough money for your cg right. that has aged in a in a less kind fashion because you were trying to make it look real right spawn we're looking at you <laughs> i wasn't gonna say it <laughs> now for our last few minutes here i am I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to run the risk of enraging our Get Me Another Board of Directors. And I want to talk about a movie that's not officially on our agenda today. But I know that when I watched Tron this week, um, and, and both of us said, what the heck, separately. Both of us said, what the heck, and threw in the 2010 sequel, Tron Legacy. And I just want to touch on that film for a couple of minutes. And I kept dreaming. Dreaming of this world I thought I'd never see. And then, one day, something happened. Something extraordinary. What was it? That's going to have to wait till next time. NCOM CEO Kevin Flynn was reported missing today. He was last seen at his home with his son, Sam. Sam. I was Paige last night. Paige came from your dad's office at the arcade. That number's been disconnected for 20 years. Hey, Dad. This isn't happening.
it's written by Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz. It was directed by Joseph Kaczynski. Uh, Tron Legacy picks up the story 28 years later with Kevin Flynn's son entering the computer world to search for his missing father. And it features returning stars Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner, as well as series newcomers Garrett Hedlund and Olivia Wilde. Uh, and it strikes me as interesting that Tron Legacy is this rare sequel that is kind of a perfect companion to its predecessor. It emulates both the strengths and weaknesses of the original Tron. Uh, you know, there's an element of it that feels a little emotionally disconnected, but at the same time, it is, it's visually incredible in a, in a whole new way. Yeah, and I, I do think for me that there is a little bit more heart in it simply because of the father-son story. Yes. Um, with, with Flynn and his son and his son, you know, being brought into the computer world in a way to bait Flynn. Uh, Clue is baiting Flynn. Yes. To, uh, to come out so that he can uh, get his info disc. Clue can get the info disc that he needs to fully, you know, take over. Uh, and it's, uh, so it does, it does give it a little bit more, uh, for me there but you know sure no and I think you're right I, I I actually think there is a there's there is a stronger emotional core in 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 Tron Legacy it's also interesting that it predated this wave of legacy sequels that we are now in the middle of um you know Tron Legacy came out five years before um before The Force Awakens which was sort of kicked off this wave and a lot of them deal with some of the same uh, you know, some of the same themes. And you see that in a number of these sort of long gap legacy sequels. Uh, the older regretful Kevin Flynn, having been trapped in the computer world for decades, is not unlike the older regretful Luke Skywalker that we meet in The Last Jedi. And even on the some of the uh, stylistic and aesthetic things, I thought the updates, for instance, the updates of the suits. Oh, great. Uh, I thought... Kept the spirit of the original, but really did update the look in a way that's just, I mean, they look, they look amazing. And then even like you go from in the original, a wonderful, wonderful Wendy Carlos score, which is mm -hmm. offbeat and its own thing, uh, but works with the movie perfectly. What do you do in the modern era? Daft Punk, baby. Yeah, there um, it is. So it's, it's these elements that it really does kind of, it's almost like you took the old movie and, and had a time warp blender and just poured it out into the new new millennia just like you would do with video games when they do a new version you know oh hey we're gonna do the 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 ps5 version of pitfall i don't know if they have that i loved pitfall as a kid i don't know if they have a new pitfall but i can imagine a version where it's the same basic game but that the the visuals are more realistic more immersive um and 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 you know I don't know. I, I now I'm down. Wow. Now I'm down for to play some Pitfall. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's a really interesting. That Tron Legacy is a really interesting film, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. I, I mean, I saw it in the movie theaters in like full IMAX, everything. It was it was it was very impressive. But I really, it, it really surprised me how much I really liked it this time around. Uh, and both of these movies, they're both they both feel like. They feel like really good. It feels like a really good companion piece, which is arguably that's what a sequel should do. And uh, it's it's particularly interesting. And and it's you know I think a lot of the films like the Black Hole, the original Tron, it just it, it laid the groundwork 
for where the modern Walt Disney Company was going to go. You know, it's I don't I don't think you have the era of of Disney and Star Wars and Disney and Marvel um, without you know this period where a lot of the films they made didn't didn't necessarily do very well at the outset, but they 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 laid the groundwork for what was to come. And I think it's I think it's a particularly interesting um, period. Uh, for the Walt Disney Company, I, I may I may revisit some of the other movies again. Return to Oz was one that I saw as a kid and just scared the bejesus out of me. My goodness! Oh yeah, I mean that's that's its whole other uh, therapy session. But um, oh yeah, you know at the beginning at the beginning of this whole series, we'd talked, uh, we'd given you the information that Star Wars had changed blockbuster filmmaking forever, which you didn't know. But <laughs> I think. This is exactly, these two films are a great point because this is showing, as you said, Chris, this is the beginning of Walt Disney turning into, you know, the modern era where it, it now has Marvel, it has Lucasfilm. It's got yeah. these other properties and it's going in these different directions. This is kind of the genesis of that. And it all started because of the success of Star Wars. You, you're yeah. literally seeing Disney is a different company because of the success of Star Wars. Now, yes. obviously, anything changes over time. Nothing is ossified in, in amber, except for dinosaurs. But, oh, yeah. yes. Um, and so it was going to change at some point. But, you know, hey, this is how it changed. And it's kind of undeniable what set the ball rolling. And it's just kind of fun to trace all this back. Yeah. Um, that said, we hope you've enjoyed listening to today's show and that you'll come back next week when we take a look at Roger Corbin's space adventure, Battle Beyond the Stars, as well as one of the most infamous Star Wars knockoffs of all time. That is right. It is time for us to tackle the man who saved the world, also known as Turkish Star Wars. Again, we thank you for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And we hope to see you next week as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.